Again, good morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles to, um, to John chapter 17. We're going to be spending um, the next two sessions, including today, in John chapter 17. It's high weeds if you've read it before. A lot of stuff to sift through. Um, as you're turning to John chapter 17, just a little bit of context. You know, any good movie, uh, they add music to heighten the, um, the drama and the anticipa- anticipation of what's about to happen. You know, so like even if you don't know what's happening in a movie, like a complicated director, like a Christopher Nolan movie, I have no idea what his movies are about, but when you're watching them, you can listen for the, the music, and when it starts to crescendo, you know that the climax has, has come. John chapter 17, the music is starting to crescendo. Uh, the climax has arrived in John's gospel. Um, it, it's upon us. So if, you, if you're thinking about the structure of John, the first 11 chapters are about Jesus' ministry up into the last week of his life. Um, the first 11 chapters are about his birth and his three years of ministry. Chapter 12, of course, is his anointing at Bethany and his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Then chapters 13 and onward, the rest of John's gospel is about the climax. It's about his passion. So chapters 13 through 16, for example, is his last night with his disciples in that upper room. Very intimate setting, his last words, his last teaching, chapters 13 through 16. Chapters 18 and 19, of course, are his betrayal, arrest, death, and the tomb. And chapters 20 through 21 is his triumphant resurrection. Chapter 17, what we're about to look at, his last night, at the end of his last night with his disciples, there's a prayer. Jesus prays. You could actually say that this is his last public ministry before he's crucified. This beautiful dialogue within the Godhead between the Father and the Son. It's amazing that we get to listen in on this. If you remember last week, Jesus taught us as his disciples how to pray. But how did Jesus pray? John 17 shows us. We're just going to look at the first five verses this week. We'll look at the rest of it in two weeks. But hear the word of God. John writes, When Jesus had spoken these words, that is after his final teachings in chapters 13 through 16, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's read together. Heavenly Father, providentially, you have given us the perfect Lenten passage. As we meditate on that last night before the death of your son, Lord God, we pray that you'd send your spirit upon us, that you would speak to us, that you would open up the treasures of this prayer made so long ago by the Son of God. We love you, O Lord, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Truly is 
an amazing kindness from God that this prayer is recorded for us. Listen to what some of the more famous people in church history have said. Martin Luther said that this chapter was the holy of holies of sacred scripture, a revelation of the inner sanctum of Christ's heart. Another reformer said, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. John Knox, the English reformer, said or read this chapter every day in the final weeks of his life before he died because, quote, it brought his soul great comfort. Volumes upon volumes have been written about this prayer. Sermons upon sermons have been preached on this prayer. The point is, we do stand on holy ground as we look at it. For after 2,000 years, after it was offered up, today in this room, we who are studying prayer get to listen in on the prayer that Jesus the Son makes. That as the cross loomed before him, he prayed for three things. Prayed for himself, prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for the would-be believers, those who would eventually come to believe on him, including me and you. It's amazing. We're just going to focus on that first portion of his prayer, his prayer for himself, verses 1 through 5. And we're going to ask four questions as we come to these five verses, the answers of which reveal to us amazing things about the Lord Jesus Christ and his relationship with God the Father. But it also reveals to us how we too ought to pray as his disciples. Four questions. To whom did Jesus pray? Secondly, for whom did Jesus pray? Thirdly, what did Jesus pray? And lastly and quickly, why did Jesus pray? All right, so first off, to who did Jesus pray? Of course, he prayed to God the Father. But before we really dive into that, I want us to pay attention to how verse 1 begins. John writes, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Just think about that. With the cross looming, the horrific death that he was hours away from experiencing, Jesus not only took the time, but contorted his body in order to pray. Isn't that amazing? Just think about that. Moments away from a horrific experience, from him on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the time to pray, even contorting his body to do so. Now, this is not the most significant point that we can make from these first five verses, but it is a significant one nonetheless, and here it is. Our physical posture is important to prayer. It's not that God is more impressed with us when we close our eyes or leave our eyes opened or if we kneel or if we lift our hands. That's not what it's about. But there is some sort of connection between our physical posture and our inward attitude in that our posture reminds our souls of what our attitude should be. I think we see that through Scripture. And frankly, that's why we practice such in our worship services here at Second. If you're a member here, you know, when we do uh, corporate prayers, either invocation or confession, we contort our bodies. So in prayers of invocation, for example, what is a prayer of invocation? That's when we're asking for God's help, right? We're, we're confessing to him. We're completely dependent upon him for all things. We need his help. We need him to hold us, to pick us up, to fill us. We actually need his spirit to worship him. We need his help. So what do we do? We actually contort our body. We lift our hands. 
And what are we, why are we lifting our hands? We are reminding our souls of what is true, that we are 100% dependent upon God for all things. We are saying physically, emotionally, spiritually, God, lift me up, fill me up, help me to worship you. That's what we're doing. Similarly, in our prayers of confession, when we confess our sins, if we're able to do so, we all kneel together on that very hard slate floor, right? Why do we do that? Not because we're punishing ourselves, but because we are reminding our spirit, our souls, that as sinful people before a just and holy God, the only posture that's acceptable is one of humility. So there's this connection almost of posture and inward attitude. So here's Jesus in this moment where most people would resign their, themselves to some sort of fatalism. I'm about to die. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Not Jesus. He takes time and he lifts his eyes heavenward to focus his heart, his mind, and his soul on the one whom his help comes. And he prays. And of course, who's that he's praying to? He's praying to his Father. And this is the main point of our first point. Jesus describes God as his Father. Now that in of itself is not a big deal. The Jews described God as their Father, but they did so in a corporate sense. God, our Father. Okay, but that's not what Jesus does here. This is not a corporate prayer. It's a private one that we're allowed to listen into. Jesus is saying that he has this unique, special relationship with the creator of the universe, that God is my personal father. In fact, the word here in Greek for father is pater, and that means father. But Jesus often used an Aramaic word for father, including in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. The Aramaic form, as you've heard before, is Abba. There is no precedent of any Jewish person describing God as Abba prior to Jesus calling God the Father Abba. And here's why. It was an extremely intimate word, as you've heard before, I am sure. It was the, it was the, the word that a little boy or a little girl would describe their earthly father as. And the English equivalent is, of course, daddy. So Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, looked to God the Father and called him daddy. Now, just to be sure, this does not mean that he had a casual relationship with God the Father. I know we have seen those bumper stickers and T-shirts that say, you know, God is my homeboy. That's very casual. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Because if you look at verse 11 and verse 25, Jesus says, holy father, righteous father. But that's the point. Jesus is saying that he has this special, unique, intimate relationship with the holy, righteous creator God. There's this unique thing, this unique relationship that Jesus is enjoying with God. Now we say that's really cool, right? But of course Jesus has a special relationship with God the Father. This is the first and second persons of the Trinity we're talking about here. God the Son, God the Father. Of course they have this unique, intimate relationship. What does that have to do with us? If you look in the New Testament, Paul says it has everything to do with us. As those who are united to the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. We have received the spirit of adoption. We have been made sons. You and Jesus Christ are a son of the living God. By whom you yourself are able to cry out, Abba, Father. That in Jesus Christ you enjoy the same special, unique relationship that he enjoys with the Father. You're able to call the creator of the universe, Daddy. 
Jesus himself was trying to make his disciples aware of this unique gift, this relationship that they were going to be able to enjoy with the Father in the chapter before ours in John chapter 16. This is what Jesus said. He goes, guys, a day is coming when you ask the Father in my name and he will give it to you. But I do not say to you that I'm going to ask the Father on your behalf. No, because the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that it came from God. The night before Jesus died, Jesus took his eyes to heaven and prayed to his Abba. And because of what Christ has done on the cross, by virtue of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers, you are able to call on the holy and righteous God, creator of the universe, as your loving, heavenly daddy. In Jesus, you have a unique relationship to God the Father. But that's to whom Jesus prays. He prays to his Abba. Secondly, for whom does Jesus pray? If you've read John chapter 17 prior to coming here, if you just know that chapter well, you know the vast majority of the content in this prayer from Jesus is directed towards other people. You know, he prays for his disciples. And he prays for those who would eventually come to know him, the future of the church, including me and you. By the way, he describes us as gifts that God the Father has given God the Son, which is astounding to think about it, that Jesus describes us as gifts that the Father has given to him. We'll talk about that in two weeks. But don't gloss over the fact that the very first, the very beginning of this prayer in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. I don't know who needs to hear this, but did you know it's okay for you to pray for you? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've come into contact with this before, but there are a lot of folks in the church who would, who would say that it's less than spiritual or less spiritual or maybe even selfish to pray for oneself, right? Because that is, well, that's not being servant-minded. I can't focus on me. i got to focus on all these people over here. And there might be people in this room where you feel squeamish in praying for yourself. I've been learning recently that most people... Don't mind being an advocate for someone else. They don't like being an advocate for themselves, though, because it just feels weird. And you might feel weird praying for yourself, but friends, if that's you, that is far from the mind of Christ. Just a cursory read of these first five verses makes it painfully clear, obviously clear, that it's more than okay for us to pray for ourselves. Jesus, the author and the perfecter of the faith, prayed for himself. Now, having said that, it's clear that our prayers are not exactly analogous to Jesus's prayers. We know that, right? Jesus is perfect, which means his prayers are perfect. We are very imperfect, which means our prayers are very imperfect too. They're often mixed with impure motives and selfish things. And that might be the reasons that, that we might have a hard time praying for ourselves because we are aware of that. But brothers, don't let that stop you from praying. If those selfish desires and impure motives reveal their ugly heads, of course repent of those. We're about to talk about that in just a second. And also be prepared for the Holy Spirit to reshape the content of our prayers as he bends our will back towards the will of the Lord, which is one of the great blessings and privileges and benefits and reasons for prayer. But friends, keep praying. Keep praying. Jesus is our great high priest in heaven, which means not only is he redeeming us, he's redeeming our prayers. He's perfecting our prayers. The Holy Spirit is interpreting our prayers when they come out all mumbled and jumbled. Keep praying. 
God wants you to bring everything that you have to him. You don't have to wait till you figure out what you need to say or how to say it. God just wants you to bring it to him without fear. Going back to that Romans 8 passage, you have not received a spirit of fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. You're his children. And as any father in this room, you desire for your kids to come to you. God desires for you to come to him. He wants you to pray to him with whatever is on your heart. This is why the, the preacher in Hebrews tells us, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that you might receive mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. So this is a minor point, but it's a significant one nonetheless. Jesus, before he prays for others and before he prays for the future of the church, he prays for himself. But in so praying for himself, he has a very specific prayer, though, that's unique to him. And this is the answer to our third question. What does Jesus pray for? What's the content of his prayer? If you look at verse 1 and 5, he prays for glory. On the night before he dies, Jesus is praying for his own glorification. And if you look at these verses, there's three arenas in which he is praying for his own glorification. We're going to look at the last one first. First off, he prays for glory in heaven. Verse 5, Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your presence before the world existed. He is praying for his future vindication, his future exaltation, where he and his father are vindicated for this grand plan of redemption working. He is praying for that day. Right? He is Just think about how amazing that is, that Jesus is praying for the glory that he shared with the Father before the world existed. This gives us a crack, an opportunity to imagine what it was like for God before time. Isn't that wild to think about? Every now and again, there's verses in the Bible that gives us the opportunity to really dwell on the fact, what was it like before Adam's existed? Ephesians 1 is another such passage. What was, it like what was it like for God before he made things? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally loving one another, eternally being loved, eternal happiness within the Godhead of our triune God, just absolute majesty and splendor. We can't even begin to think about it. <laughs> but then you go to passages like Philippians 2 that talk about the incarnation where Paul says it was the will of the Father and the desire of the Son in the incarnation for Jesus to empty himself. Now, that does not mean that Jesus ceased to be God. We know that. He continues to be God. However, in the incarnation, he did limit himself. He limited his privileges of the throne. He also uh, laid aside his visible Shekinah glory. And of course he did. No one would be able to, to approach him if he didn't. But he took on flesh. He took on the form of a servant, right? So here, at the end of his humiliation, three years of being rejected by those who were about to nail him to a cross, how do you think Jesus felt at the prospect of returning to his Father? This, by the way, is not a prayer for a de-incarnation. No. Once Jesus takes on flesh, he kept it. Jesus did not leave his body behind in the tomb when he walked out of it. He rose in exalted glory in a transformed body where he now represents us at his Father's side. But this is a prayer of Jesus longing 
to go back to that glory in which he shared with his father before the world began, that, e, that visible Shekinah glory, that absolute splendor. There could be nothing but joy and anticipation in Christ's heart. However, he knows in order to receive that, he must finish his mission. So you look at verse 1. Verse 1, he says, the hour has come. For those of us familiar with John's gospel, we know how significant that phraseology is. Up until this point, he has said many times, the hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet arrived. But in chapter 17, verse 1, he says, the hour has come. The climax has arrived. Calvary is upon me. Father, I am coming to you. Now glorify me. What he's referring to is the cross. Because Jesus knows, Jesus knows that the cross is the way of glory. This is the way of God's people. Humiliation, then exaltation. The apostle Peter and Paul tell us it's humiliation, then exaltation. It's suffering, then glory. And Jesus knows the cross is the way to that heavenly glory in which he desires. But that is not why uh, Jesus is praying to be glorified at the cross in verse 1. Why is he praying to be glorified at the cross at verse 1? Because he knows that the cross itself would fully glorify God. I mean, think about it. In John chapter 1, verse 18, we see that Jesus is the perfect explanation, the full exegesis of God the Father. If you want to know what God is like, all you got to do is look to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, same thing. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If you want to know what God the Father is like, look to Jesus. Jesus has already glorified and revealed the Father by the matchless perfection of his life. But John says, Jesus says in this passage that that horrible, wretched tree would be the supreme revelation of divine glory. The cross in which he was about to be nailed to. That is the supreme revelation of divine glory. Think about it. What do we learn at the cross? We, we learn about the love and the justice and the holiness of God is at the cross that those things kiss. We learn about His extreme and, and completely rational hatred of sin, but we also see His unmatched love for sinful people. That's what we see at the cross. One commentator put it like this. If Jesus stopped short of the cross, that would have proved that there is a degree of love to which God is not prepared to go for us. But the fact that Jesus had his hands and his feet nailed to the cross proves that there is no limit for God's love for sinful people like you and me. Without the cross, we would have never have known that. So here's Jesus, the moment before he shouts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, God, hold me. Don't let me die before I get there. Keep me. Make it so that I might be glorified. He prayed for the cross. Brothers, this is holy ground. So he's longing to be glorified in heaven. He's longing to be glorified at the cross. Lastly, he's longing to be glorified in the church. If you look at verse 2, Jesus is referring to this pre-temporal agreement made in eternity past where the Father promised to give the Son authority over all of humanity and the authority to save those gifts whom the Father has given the Son. Then in verse 3, he goes on this excursus, this, this further explanation of what eternal life is. 
Now, we know that eternal life, quite simply, is life eternal. We know that. But notice how Jesus describes it here. In verse 3, he describes it as a knowing. A knowing of the Father and a knowing of the Son. Now, this isn't just a, you know, an intellectual knowledge. This is, a, this is an intimate knowledge. This is a fellowship knowledge. That's what, how he describes eternal life. Now, that's significant because if you go to New Covenant passages, so for example, uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 34, or Hebrews chapter 8, verse 11, one of the major promises of the New Covenant is that the people of God, from the least to the greatest, would know God personally and intimately. They would have this fellowship with God. Kind of what Jesus is talking about in verse 2 and verse 3. Then if you go elsewhere in the New Testament, say for example 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18, Paul says as we have fellowship with Christ, of course by His Spirit, abiding in His Word, believing in Him, obeying Him, applying His Word, what does Paul say? He says we begin to be transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. That as we behold Jesus in His Word, and walk by the Spirit, which this is another way of saying abiding in the Word of Christ. As we're walking by the Spirit, slowly but surely, what happens? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 5, slowly but surely, we become more and more like Jesus. Our character becomes more and more and more like Jesus. So why did Christ, in his prayer for his own glorification, mention us? Because in our fellowship with him, in our growing knowledge of him. There's a greater revelation of his glory in us. So just think about it like this on the ground level every day. The people of Christ, his disciples, are the best chance of a lost world to catch the glory of God. That's something. 2,000 years ago was the cross, heaven is not yet here. It's here in mustard seed form, but it's not yet here in full. But Jesus is saying that we as his people have a part to play in revealing his glory as we love and follow him in a lost and dying world. That's significant. In his prayer for himself, Jesus discloses that you and I are significant of revealing his glory to those around us. So again, on the night before Jesus died, he prays for his own glorification. Glory at the cross. Glory in the church. Glory in heaven. Lastly, why does he pray these things? Friends, Jesus prays all of these things. He, he is obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? So that the Father might be glorified. That's the chief aim of his prayer. Look at verse 1. He says, The hour has come. Glorify me. Take me to the cross. Why? That I might glorify you. Brothers, from Jesus' perspective, even his own prayer, even his own prayer for glorification was not an end to itself. It was so that the Father might be glorified. It was at the cross that the Father would glorify the Son. It was at the cross the Son would reveal the unparalleled goodness and love that Abba the Father has for you and for me. That was the great desire of Jesus' heart. That's what he longed for. And that's what he prayed for. And praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ that never has there been a prayer answered 
so bountifully. Just think about this. The main takeaway for us, someone emailed me um, a couple weeks ago, can we please have a, a, a prayer that we study for the season of Lent? This is it. The main takeaway has nothing to do with prayer. The main takeaway, brothers, is just marvel at this love of God that Jesus prayed for the cross. Marvel at that. Sit in that as we walk to Good Friday. But I suppose another takeaway is this. If the main desire, the chief desire of Jesus' life, the main priority even in his death, and the main subject matter of his prayer was the glory of God, what does that mean for us? Think about the things we prayed for this morning, whatever we prayed for last night. Think about that, then ask, why did I pray that? Do you remember in James chapter 4, verse 3, when James talks to those knuckleheads in the church and tell them why their prayers weren't being answered? It's because they had mixed motives for selfish gain. God was far from their mind. Now, if we see that in our own life, it's simple. Just repent of it, like we talked about earlier. Just repent of it and allow the Holy Spirit to use this prayer of Jesus to shape the content of our own prayer, that we might be so overwhelmed with the glory of God, it becomes the chief desire of our heart as it was for our Savior the night before he died. That's the main takeaway. The song that we just sang, um, To God Be the Glory, was written by Franny Crosby. Um, She has written a lot of hymns that we sing in the church. If you know anything about her, she was blind at age six. For 80 years, she never saw a ray of light Yet not a day went by where she did not marvel at the glory of God and help other people to do so, writing 8,000 texts, many of which became hymns, revealing the glory of God, the majesty of God seen in the love of God. Brothers, my prayer for myself, my prayer for you, is that we'd be exactly the same, that we'd be a group of men who marveled at the glory of God seen so clearly in the cross of Christ, and that we would help our friends do the same. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I confess that I often live and pray for my own glory. And I know my brothers do the same because we're all sinful people. Forgive us and have mercy. Help us by your spirit to be so awakened to your glory as seen perfectly in the cross, so shaken, so filled, so secure by the love of Jesus that it just spews from us, that we can do no other but give you thanks and help other people to do the same. We love you, God, and it's in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus we pray. Amen.